Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Adam Brogan. Why don't you uh, tell us what you do? Because if I say one word, it might offend. So I'll let you tell us what you do. Well, it's Adam Boots Brogan, you know, like how it's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, <laughs> not nearly on his level, but no, anyone who really knows me, they call me Boots, so feel free. Um, and anyone listening, um, Boots, Bootsy, uh, I've been called worse. So <laughs> now I'm a bartender here in San Francisco um, by way of London and um, a brief stint in Paris. So um, I love pouring drinks and I've done everything from nightclub bartending, dive bar bartending, restaurant bartending to now, you know, the mixology that we call it. <laughs> but, um, with the rise of craft cocktails, uh, I really dove in. And so bartender, mixologist, whatever you want to call it, that's what I do. I just tell people I pour liquid into glasses. That's, <laughs> that's what I get paid to do. And I'm very fortunate to do so. I got to inquire. How did, uh, how'd you get the name, the nickname? Oh, that's, that's going to take some more drinks out of me, Michael. Um, <laughs> it's actually a longer story and not nearly as cool as you would want it to be. But, um, yeah, it's – long story short, I, I was born here in San Francisco and I grew up in London. And I moved back here to the States just before high school. And um, if you would know, as many people know, teenagers are bloody mean. Oh, yeah. And I think more than anything – um, I just wanted to be accepted and I wanted to fit in and you wouldn't tell it or you, you wouldn't be able to tell I'm six foot two forty five, red beard, but I am half Filipino and, uh, it was my Filipino cousins here in the Bay area. They said, Oh, you know, if you're going into high school, like you got to get yourself like the clothes. And number one, this was like 94, 95. They were saying you had to get the Timberland boots right in London. It's doc Martens. Because right. it rains all the time, they're waterproof, they're indestructible, but no. In the 90s, I mean, definitely more of a New York thing now that I know, but um, you know, if you're a hip-hop head, then it was all about the Tims, like the bright yellow wheat nubar Tims. So I got them. I had to. Problem for me was I went to school in Marin County. It's just north of San Francisco. It's like the fourth richest county in California, and nobody wears Tims. <laughs> so the joke was on me that I really wanted to fit in and more than anything, I stood out. And so it kind of took on from there. Um, all, all through high school, people just called me boots. Um, I graduated as boots. And then I think after that I played college football. And if you ever played sports locker rooms, they love nicknames. Oh yeah. And that takes a life of its own. I was a bouncer shockingly. Um, after playing college football and people think you got your nickname boots in other ways, being a bouncer. <laughs> and then it's just stuck with me. And as an adult, I'm 38 years old now. I think I've been boots for over 25 years. I would love to introduce myself as Adam. I'd be a little more professional, but honestly, no one calls me Adam. So right. there is that familiarity that anyone who really knows me, they call me boots. And I know that was a much longer answer than anyone needs to know, but it's, it's got its own life. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Yeah, I even have it tattooed on my arm because I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> and in the words of, of my British dad, he's like, what, are you going to forget your bloody nickname? And I don't know. It's there. 
So how did uh, how did you go for about from moving from San Francisco to the UK for a little bit? How long were you there? Oh, uh, in the UK. Yeah. It was my whole childhood. Okay. Um, I grew up in Wimbledon, uh, South Wimbledon, uh, to be exact. You you pronounce that with an F, Michael. It's a uh, South Wimbledon. Um, and there's two sides to it. There's Wimbledon Village, where the tennis tournament is, and I did live there the last year that I was there. But uh, definitely proud South Wimbledon boy. And uh, I loved it, but my dad actually wanted to move me and my sister at the time back here to the States to go to university. And it's a very odd thing for people who wouldn't understand, you know, British culture, but they're still very much as the class society. And whereas we, you know, we never went for want as a family, we definitely weren't upper class at the time. And I was told from an early age in, in London to get a trade. Uh, funnily enough, I found one pouring <laughs> drinks. But in England at the time, especially when I grew up in the 90s, was only the really rich or the really smart went to university. And I was neither. So you can leave school at 16. It's not dropping out. You're kind of done unless you're studying for university and take what they call the GCSEs, which is kind of like our SATs. But um, my dad moved us here to the States uh, to go to university. Um, but the joke was on him when I did go back to school. Um, I went out to Paris. But <laughs> uh, that I'm going back to Europe. <laughs> what drew you to Paris to, for uh, for the higher education? I studied business. Okay. I studied business management out there and uh, a minor focus in international business. And honestly, it was all a ruse just to live in Paris. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> I I would have studied waste management if I got to be and live in Paris at the time. So honestly, don't put too much stock into that. <laughs> so how does somebody go from getting a degree in business to pouring drinks for a living? I mean, how did you, for most people, bartending, and as it was for me, it was kind of a side gang, a way to make some extra money. But you've parlayed that into a, a full-time thing and, and then some. How did that come about? Oh, you wanted to talk about bartending and not just talk about my history for an hour. <laughs> but good transition there. Uh, no, it's it's absolutely like a, a valid question. Um, I think not to go back too far and give you context, but growing up in London, I grew up in the pubs since I was about three years old, and I was always fascinated. Anyone who knows pub culture, it's it's its own world. And I've always said the bartender or the barman or the pub keep, um, whatever you call them, the publicans. Most pub owners they live upstairs. That that is their home, and and they run it in that way that I always felt fascinating. They knew everybody's names and they were sort of like the ringmasters of the circus is, you know, a, a pub, like any bar, it's just chaos all around. And somehow this one person at the center of it had his hand on all of it and, and kept it controlled. And that, I think I was bit by the bug early. I just used to sit there and I was fascinated watching the bar scene, especially in, in England. They call it the crack of a bar. And uh, the crack, as they refer to it, is spelled C-R-A-I-C. Um, it's an English or Irish term, but they, they use it in both countries. And the crack is the energy. And there's something that's not quantifiable, but it's something you feel. And I always loved a good crack. It's it's the energy. It's, it's the shit talking across the bar. But it's, it's the life um, of the place. And that always stayed with me. So come to... Um, even before I went to college, I, as I said, I was a bouncer at nightclubs and I think early on I got tired of 
getting paid $15 an hour to get punched in the face by people <laughs> when you're trying to break up from fire that they got themselves into. And I just saw behind the bar, like the people pouring drinks and everyone loved them and everyone hated me. So I thought I need a career change. here. <laughs> I'm getting paid way too little uh, to take on the risk that I am. So I actually did start bartending early on in nightclubs. And uh, for anyone listening, if you are more interested in how to get into bartending rather than learn about my history, which is far <laughs> less interesting, I would say nightclubs are actually a great learning environment for people starting out. Um, it's fast and heavy bartending. Um, I used to do like 5,000 in sales in four hours. And for people who don't know what that is, like I work at some bars where you do 5,000 in sales all day from like four o'clock till, till midnight. And that's a busy bar with food and drinks. But I mean, just my register, just my till like two, 3000 capacity nightclub. And it's so fast. You can't hear yourself think kind of thing. And it, yeah. And, the thing with learning that is you learn to put your ego aside and just what we call turn and burn. You, yeah. you learn the mechanics of bartending and it becomes so second nature because it really is survival. You either get those drinks out or you don't. And if you don't, people are going to let you hear about it oh, because yeah. they want to get back to the dance floor. And But I've always thought from that, you can take someone fast and teach them to slow down, but you can't necessarily do the opposite and teach, teach someone who started in the quote-unquote mixology world and teach them to speed up or cut corners in order to uh, expedite service because they've been taught, taught ha- hard and fast rules that don't necessarily apply. Um, so back to your question, how did I get into it? I was doing the nightclub bartending, uh, went to school, and then I bartended through school. And it was something I always loved and coming out of business school with a degree, I think I took like three interviews for corporate positions and I just didn't care. I think I took an interview that was working in sales for cloud data security and I just couldn't be more bored during the interview. And I told the interviewer as much and I said, sorry to cut this off, but I'm fucking bored and what little (laughs) I do understand um, I don't like, and he, he was very candid with me and he said, you know, you came highly recommended from your professors. He said, I suggest you find something you do like because you're a smart guy. And, um, the more I thought about it, I was always, always rewarded with a night after work bartending. And I loved the crack of a bar, but I also loved the genuine interactions with people. I actually got to talk to people Yeah, and I didn't, or it's still to this day as a bartender, I don't feel like I'm selling you something you don't want, which in business it's, you know, there's That's the there's push. so many methods and it, it's the push and you have quotas, but I know everyone that walks through that door, they want alcohol in some form. I just have to figure out the vehicle, whether it's a glass of wine, a bottle of beer, a craft cocktail, or maybe you just want a shot. And it's my job to facilitate that and other things. But it, it took that business knowledge and that later equated into bar management. And I'm so thankful for my schooling, but honestly, throughout all of it, really one of, one of my professors taught me, he said, when you interview, you're trying to sell yourself how you're a fit for the company. He said, but you also have to think about how is that company a fit for you and, and no company and no industry save for maybe travel and hospitality 
really rivaled um, the service and hospitality industry that was bartending. So I, I went towards that and I, I haven't looked back. So there's, there's a couple of things that I wanted to pop off of what you just said. Um, yeah, that was a really tough answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfectly fine. Um, you kind of just jumped in and you kind of recommend people jump into to the, the nightclub scene as a way to kind of you know, trial by fire. I was going to ask, do you, do you prefer or suggest people maybe take a few cat classes to get an understanding of what's going to be expected or just, you know, as you said, turn and burn? No, that's a good question. It, it wouldn't be my first recommendation. It, it definitely is trial by fire. <laughs> and I think it might scar a couple of people from ever wanting to pick up a bottle again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll make a few teetotalers out of, out of everyone listening if they just try to jump into nightclub bartending. For me, it was natural because I had worked in the nightclub scene. The the easy, not the easy, the the natural way to get into bartending, bartending is to bar back. And I bar backed for two years before I was allowed to bartend. And it, it's a blessing and a curse when you bar back because there's some really good bartenders who helped me along the way and they gave me time and they taught me along the way. But I'll tell you, for the first year, most of the bartenders that I worked under, you were just the bar bitch. Yeah. Uh, excuse the terminology. It's just you really are more so like the gopher. Go for this. Go for that. Go for ice. Go for limes. And you're just getting yelled at for four hours. It's not really rewarding. And you're wondering where the payoff is. But given that experience, every bar back that I've had under, under me, uh, I take them on almost as like a mentor would because that's how people brought me on. And it was so rewarding and more than a bar back. I just think you're a bartender's apprentice. And I think like with any discipline, it's that 10,000 hours, right, Michael? Is <laughs> repetition. You can, you can, yeah, it's repetition. And I think for people who want to bartend, if you can take some, swallow some humility, sorry, swallow some pride <laughs> and, and take some humility is really just sit back. And it's kind of nice to not have to look at, customers that take the order as a barback you genuinely just keep your head down but more than just restocking ice or limes or more bottles of vodka because your bartender ran out is watch is i learned so much from from working behind great bartenders and i would log what they do and kind of steal their tricks um kind of like a kid would watch like steph curry do something in a game and then the next day when you're by yourself and no one's watching, you try that step book, that step back three pointer is, or the crossover is I did that with bartending and it sounds funny, but I think really anything you can turn into a craft if, if you pay enough attention and detail to anything. And I always wanted to be better and I definitely didn't want to bar back all the time, but little things I tell bartenders and barbacks now. And I'll still do this. My fiance will watch me at a bar and I'm watching people. Is something as simple, Michael, is how they lay down a napkin, how they greet a guest, or how they place a menu. Um, years ago, I wouldn't even pour water for people at the bar. And that was a horrible um, practice from the nightclub days because in nightclubs, water meant zero dollars in sales. Right. I'm here to turn and burn ring the register and get people alcohol because we only have till about one thirty here in California. So water was a waste of my time, but I saw someone or actually I sat at someone's bar 
and I never had to ask for water. Whether I had food in front of me or if I didn't, they were always on top of it, topping off my glass. And I just thought it was such a beautiful attention to detail and a higher elevated step of service that I wanted to emulate that. So it doesn't have to be as sexy as the Steph Curry crossover, but if you do something that is admirable, then you can copy that. And I always thought, let me cop, let me copy the best practices of people that I've either worked with or that I've seen sitting at their bar. And equally as important for anyone listening, pay attention to bad bartenders or bad service, but not just to slag them off and say, Oh, they suck at life is what exactly didn't they do? Did they ask, or did you ask them for your check? And then they came back 20 minutes later. Were they dismissive? Were they curt? Or just were they not attentive? Um, and just make sure you don't do that. And I think I'm always a student. Um, my peers know me well that as much as I know, I celebrate what I don't know. And I'm the first one to call friends and say, hey, how do you do this? Because I want to be better. And, um, and that never stops. So I stood behind a bar for a little while and one of the things that I loved was just the people watching and kind of listening to the different engagements and there's something very hard to explain for people who haven't been behind a bar to, to feel, as you said, the, the crack. And it was a quasi-dive bar. It was attached to a restaurant, so we served food and everything. But, you know, like you said, people came into a bar. There was no need to push anything because you knew what they wanted. They wouldn't come in there if they didn't want anything to drink. So it was just a matter of providing them with the service. What are some of the uh, lessons aside from, you know, being attentive and, and listening did you pick up from some of your mentors? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, obviously I didn't pick up the listening part too well. Um, <laughs> I, I talk a lot and I found a job that pays me to talk to people, but that actually is one of the biggest lessons um, that I learned. I mean, this is a podcast. This is me and you chatting. So I'm going to talk your ear off and unfortunately for everyone listening, but <laughs> um, I did learn at the bar when to step away is that I forget who was it that taught me. I've had so many great people that I've worked with and under, but they said, you know, people come here to enjoy the bar and obviously some, some professional service and even a little light banter, but they didn't pay for you to be their entertainment. Right. You know? Um, and I, I thought that was such a valuable lesson because I'd love to share stories and I'd love to ask people about their stories if they're in town or if they're from here. And I, I like to get to know people better, but it, it really is that power of observation. There's an emotional intelligence that's required of bartending um, where you have to feel out each customer. It's the thing that's so much difficult than what I jokingly refer to as just pouring liquid into glasses. Anyone can do that. But being a good bartender and managing the bar the seats, your coworkers, you know, it, it really is that ringmaster in the circus analogy. And, um, there's that, um, being a better listener, which I've joked about not being the best at, um, a couple things that I would suggest to anyone, whether they're bartending for, um, just a few months, a year to myself over 10 years. And I still think about this is no one cares about your day. 
like you will have some regulars that you know personally, maybe even hung out outside of the bar. But I always say you go to a bar to unwind, not get wound up. Right. And I think, and this is why I recommend it even to seasoned bartenders when I'm managing, and I've had someone who's been bartending for eight, 10 years. Oh, cool. I don't have to tell them anything. No, you do have to stay on top of that because sometimes you get a little jaded. Sometimes you let your day leak into it, but you are the entertainment, so to speak. You, you don't have to stand in front of them and, and give them like, you know, a 20 minute set while they're on a date is, but you do, you're the facilitator of good times. Yeah. yeah I, on my business card, it jokingly says professional enabler <laughs> is, but you're, you're there to have fun and to promote a good night. You're that person when they say, I just want one, like maybe you get a second out of them, not because you're bullying them into a second drink, but we all need a little nudge. And right. that's what, you know, a good bartender, a server will do. And, um, I've, I've sat at people's bars. I've worked with a couple of people where it's, it's draining Michael. When you work with someone and they're telling you about how bad their day is, you're <laughs> like, Oh shit, this is going to be a long night. Like I never want to go to a bar and have a stranger dump his problems on me. Right. Um, as a bartender, we're used to that. That's kind of like par for the course. It's it's the customer's job. That's what I mean. You go to a bar to unwind, have a drink, vent it out, and, and get it out of your system, and now we can enjoy the night. But you don't want that from the bartender. From the customer, it's expected. And I'll actually I'll help guide you through this problem. It's all right. Here's a drink. Here's another one. We'll get through this together. Here's um, some perspective to, to maybe lighten your, uh, lighten your mood a little bit too. Yeah, no one pays to um, to hear about our problems, and, and nor should they. And I, I learned that lesson early on. That was probably one of the things in nightclubs, just a little callback to my first experience. When you have 2,000 people yelling at you for four hours, I said you cannot hear yourself think. I remember the first couple of shifts, I wanted to cry. And no one would have given a damn, honestly, and nor should they. Um and once I got up to the speed and the rhythm of things and I could start knocking out drinks and, and not want to crawl into the, to the refrigerator and hide, um, one of my bartenders next to me says, hey, man, he goes, you look stressed. And I'm like, yeah, because I fucking am. <laughs> and he goes, I'm stressed too. He goes, but what's on my face? I was like, stupid shit-eating grin. Like, why are you even smiling? <laughs> like, this sucks. <laughs> he goes, yeah, it does. He goes, but we're making money. He goes, also, we're the life of the party. And he pointed out what I mentioned earlier. He goes, watch people who are good at this. And I looked around and the veteran bartenders, they were just as stressed as me, if not more, because as a faster bartender, we all do that thing at a bar. You see kind of like picking the faster line. Yeah. You see the bartenders knocking out drinks and you're like, okay, that's my horse. I'm, I'm picking that one. So it kind of sucks because if you're a better, faster bartender, you have more people ordering from you. Right. So not only were they as stressed as me, they were probably more stressed because they were better. And they were all smiling. Some of them were dancing while pulling Coronas out of the fridge. And like, I was mad at them because they looked so <laughs> carefree. But uh, my friend was telling me, he goes, no, we're, we're all stressed. And he goes, but if the customer sees a smile on your face and they're smiling, we, they paid to come to a party and it doesn't have to be a nightclub. It could be your local bar. Maybe the energy's not as high as a 2000 capacity club. But if people see you having a good time and laughing and joking or just genuinely smiling, they're like, cool, I'm happy to be here. It's you are the provider of energy. You're, you're kind of like the catalyst back there. And that was something very valuable that I always share with everyone. 
is I don't care how stressed you are. Put on that service smile. And anyone listening who has bartended or served, we know it. It's, it's something we joke around that when you hit the register, you're fuming. You look like that angry face emoji, like you're beat red. You're cursing at whatever table or whatever customer is giving you shit, maybe a coworker or a manager. And then someone says, hey, Michael, can you do anything? And you whip your head around, and it's the face that that faces the floor. Like as soon as a customer can see your face, you whip it around. And you got this big Cheshire cat grin on. You're like, yes, oh, what yeah. can I get for you? It's It, it very much is um, Jekyll and Hyde, and you have to. That's It's expected. Um, and it, it's not just like it's never written in your job description, but it's, it's part of the professionalism that is. It's suck it up, and it's – you're there to have a good time or at least promote that good time. Right. Um, and it's one myself and I know a lot of other bartenders, they've perfected. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that mindset that, you know, as I said before, offering a perspective that person might not be thinking about for their bad day, giving something to think about the smile, the service with the smile thing is a big thing. You know, I always tried to make my customer smile. I always tried to make sure they had a good time before they left and and left happy. Um, yeah, I, I think, and you just reminded me of another thing that's related to that is it, it is the customer that's important. It's, I, I think, you know, going back to that question of why did I choose bartending over business or corporate business life is I think I found an industry where selfishly it makes me happy to make other people happy. My job isn't just making a drink. My job is to make people feel special, even if only for a minute. And I don't mean that um, fancifully. I mean that because I, as I travel and as I go around, even in my own city, or I just went to Chicago for the first time two weeks ago. Anyone in Chicago, I love your city. It is fantastic. I mean, one, it's a drinking city. Um, They know how to do it properly. But um, it really... The, the love that I get from complete strangers sitting at their bar and you have honest conversations, it really is a relationship and it's never solely about the drink. And it reminds me of another lesson I learned from a bar manager in London where your question is what sparked this. What were some early lessons I learned? And one of the universal truths for bartending, whether it's in a pub, a dive bar, a nightclub, um, a craft cocktail bar, it's quite simply this, Michael, is that the person in front of you is just as important, if not more, than what's in the glass. And I think that gets lost a lot um, in this current bartender first mixologist debate that we can touch on later. But it's just what's in the glass. It's, or, sorry, it's just the person in front of you. Right. It's for their time, um, within reason, as long as they're respectful, and you know, but an honest react, uh, interaction. Make the time special or just be receptive. It's bartenders do so much. But if you pay attention to the person in front of you, um, it can make a world of difference. It's why we spend four times as much to go drink that same beer at a bar than we could drink at a home. Right. I have I have a full bar back here I could show you. Um, that's for guests. <laughs> you can ask my fiance. I rarely drink at home. I poured myself, treated myself to a really nice tequila while we we're doing this interview. <laughs> I felt like it was fitting, uh, seeing as we're going to do a podcast about bartending, I may as well have a tipple. But I don't have any beer in my fridge. I don't have any mixers. If anybody <laughs> asks me for a cocktail at home, it's going to be a highball. It's going to be whiskey and soda water. It'll be tequila and soda water. Like, 
I will make delicious craft cocktails. Dealer's choice. Like name a spirit, I'll make you a drink that doesn't exist at my bar. But at home, it is so elementary, it's embarrassing. I was going to ask, what what do you think are every basic essentials for a home bar are? Easy. Well, I say easy. I'm about to go off on a huge list. (laughs) How do I do this for people listening? You want good, solid spirits for whatever your spirit you like. There's no point me recommending, oh, get yourself a nice high-proof rye if you don't like whiskey in general. So if you like gin, my bar, vodka, gin, rum, tequila, whiskey. Those are the five main spirits. But you don't need those if you don't drink any of them. If you don't like whiskey, if you don't like gin, whatever, leave those out. Um, if you want to be a good host, always have vodka as a rule. Um, vodka pays the bills is what we say. Is It's just a fan favorite. It's not polarizing, and it's easy. Um, I've always called vodka the chicken of the bar. Um, <laughs> and if you know, if you cook with chicken, it just takes on whatever flavor you impart on it. Right. And uh, I don't mean that disparagingly towards vodka. It's just it's, it's a very easy spirit to mix with. So always have that in the house, but I would suggest when you're building your home bar, whatever spirit you get, spend more than the $10, $12 than you're tempted to um, because you want something nice to mix with. I would say, and obviously retail prices vary across the country, I would say for an at-home bar, spend anywhere from $15 to $25 on that bottle. And that's a good price range where it'll mix good cocktails and the 20 to $25 range can be sipped on neatly. Um, and, and that's kind of what you want. Cause not everyone will want cocktails or sometimes like me, you have a good bar, but you just have an unexpected guest over and I have no mixers whatsoever. So at least then you can offer them a good highball or just sip it neat or with some rocks. But after the spirits, I would say, I actually teach cocktail classes online and I always say like stock up your fridge. If you know, you're going to have people over make a simple syrup. If you ever buy simple syrup at the store, like stop (laughs) it's sugar, it's sugar water. It's the cheapest thing ever. And I see at the store, they charge like $10 for like 500 milliliters of sugar water. It just, I am half Filipino. Like (laughs) that just blows my mind that people will spend that much on sugar water. And it's the easiest thing ever. It's, one part sugar, one part water. Um, and you don't even have to get it to a boil. There's no crazy technique to it. You just want to dilute the sugar um, until it's soluble. Um, sure, like simple syrup. With that and lemons or limes, you can make whiskey sours. You can make bee's knees, a lemon drop, a gimlet, a daiquiri, a margarita. Fresh citrus, lemon and lime juice, and simple syrup. You can make over 20 cocktails, over right. 30 cocktails. You throw in some soda water, some champagne to top it. You've now got 40, 50 different cocktails. But uh, I always suggest to people when I teach my cocktail classes, like one of the beautiful things with the craft cocktail movement was fresh ingredients. And um, people who say they don't like margaritas is because they're using like the pre-made sweet and sour mix at the store. And it's too tart. It's way too sugary. It gives you a hangover. Like a proper margarita should be two, three things. Tequila, agave, and lime juice. That's it. A daiquiri, a rum daiquiri is one of my favorite things. And I'm not talking about like the frozen cruise ship daiquiri. And that's like neon <laughs> pink. 
a fresh daiquiri should be like a rum margarita. There's rum, lime juice, and simple syrup. And you do that, we call it a 2-1-1 measurement, two parts liquor, one part citrus, one part of the simple syrup or agave nectar in the case of the margarita. It's fresh, it's clean, the alcohol, you can still taste it. And um, it's a world of difference. It's just something about fresh citrus. It just has a life and a zest that that makes the cocktail. I don't want to sound too pretentious. Like it's alive. (laughs) It really does. It wakes up the zest of the citrus. And the pH level is what we care about. It's that tart puckering feeling that that we kind of get when we drink a, a sour cocktail. Try that with fresh lemon and lime juice and squeeze that same lemon lime juice and try it in five to six hours. It'll taste like lemon and lime, but you don't get that that Pucker. that puckering effect, and it's that that zest, that reason why we love citrus, and especially we're kind of getting towards fall season, so it's not as hot out anymore. But especially when it is hot outside, you want that that big bright feeling of drinking a a citrus cocktail. So refreshing. That's the big thing, yeah. And to make everyone's life easier, I'm recommending getting lemons and limes. Buy yourself a citrus press. They're like they're like those little clamp vice-like things. They come in bright yellow or bright green. If anyone's trying to buy some on Amazon, get the yellow one, the one size for lemons, because if you understand geometry or not even geometry, that old kids game with shapes, <laughs> which one can fit into what? A lime can fit into a lemon squeezer, but a lemon cannot fit into a lime squeezer. So you only need one. <laughs> get the lemon squeezer. And you cut a lemon in half, and you can squeeze fresh lemon juice and cut limes. That will also fit. It cracks me up when people have a lemon and a lime squeezer. It's just no, just purpose. get the bigger one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And but that's like eight, nine, ten bucks, and it is life saving. Otherwise, you're sitting there trying to like hand squeeze a lime, and you will get over that quickly, and you will be damning my name. Like, why'd you tell me to get fresh <laughs> juice? I'm gonna get that shitty sweet and sour. Get a juice press. Oh, and then finally a jigger. Like um, to measure stuff, and but it's not really a necessity because if you have like um, baking, um, what is it? Baking measuring cups. Uh, what people don't know is sixty mils is two ounces, like roughly, like almost. So um, if you have one of those and you want to make, like, say, a margarita, do sixty mils of tequila, thirty mils of lime juice, thirty mils of agave. Like, you don't need all the expensive bar tools. I tell people you don't need to go out and spend like eighty bucks on shakers and shakers and stuff. Speed quarters. <laughs> yeah, you could do two shot glasses of tequila, one shot glass of lime juice, one shot glass of agave. When they say two parts, one part, one part, it it translates across any measurement. Right. It's just if you want to get into the hosting and the show of it, you kind of would want the tools. But I would say absolutely get the citrus press. That'll that'll save you a ton of time and it's worth it. Pre make some simple syrup and, and get your spirits. But um it, it really does make a world of difference instead of just hosting the party and you've got Coke, Sprite and Ginger Ale. Um it, it'll step it up a notch. So to kind of jump behind the bar for again for yeah. a second, what are some of the things that uh as a bartender kinda can put you off? When somebody sits down and looks like the first thing they could say that's going to make you roll your eyes and go, one of these guys. Oh, that's a good one. There's too many. Um, <laughs> and I also, I don't know, because someone might say something one day and I'm not in the mood. And the next day, not like I'm in the mood <laughs> to get shit or get yelled at or get interrupted in what you're doing. Everything you do as a bartender, you're going to get interrupted. Right. So I think you have to make peace with that. Um, it's just sometimes more than others. 
this person might not know that they were the 21st person in a row to interrupt you. And that's the straw that breaks the back. Um, what are some things, the money waving in the face, whether you're at a nightclub or a restaurant, um, I see you, I don't care. Um, what are some, it's a really good question because I want to be fair to it and not just say, Oh, do whatever you want. And it's just the bartender in a bad mood. Um, <laughs> if they don't like you, I could tell you, it's not just money in the, in the air or your hand up in the air. Stay where you are. I think one of the biggest things is bartenders. We not just knowing the drinks and people don't know when they go to interrupt us that I'm making 16 drinks. Like I can be making up to 16 drinks without losing track. And it's a little trick we use where we call it, we call it markers. You, as people order, you put up a rocks glass, you put up a martini glass, you put up a Collins glass. And in my head, I'm remembering what everyone ordered. So when you're that person, you're like, Hey, could I just get a Kolsch? And you're like, dude, for your beer, I just lost 16 <laughs> drinks in my head. Like there's tools and tricks and, you, you learn to, to listen past that and to keep everything stacked in your head. But um, no is what my point was. When we're bartending, we're doing all of that. We're facilitating and pouring water for the person. I also ordered food for bar seat five, which is you sitting at there at the end of the bar with your friend. I've mem- remembered to put plates and silverware and all of that out for you so when the food gets delivered, you're ready to eat. I'm we're facilitating so much. I think my point, Michael, is I know where everyone at the bar is. I know where the new customers are when they walk through the door. I know exactly where you are. Don't be the person that walks up and down the bar as I'm walking up and down the bar. Because right. I'm going back and forth giving people drinks, busting their tables, or just grabbing other ingredients to make more drinks. I, I think one of my the, line. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think one of the things that used to bug me was you know the – just the, the little comments of, you know, make sure you pour it heavy or, you know, don't put too much ice in oh, it. Things like Strong that. Strong Island. Yeah. It, it's for, for anyone wondering, Strong Island is not a drink. It's <laughs> people cheekily say, I want a Long Island, but make it strong is fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a drink. I, it's... I never mean to belittle people, but I just want to tell people clearly in so many words, that's not a drink. Um, it, the make it strong. Um, there's so many little things, but it's, I, I think honestly, it's don't follow people up and down the bar, the bartender, stay exactly where you are. Um, don't shout, don't raise your hand. We know where you are. Just wait for eye contact. If we get eye contact and like get a nod, we know you're there. Stay where you are and be patient. It's, we all hate queuing. Um, I think we've gotten a little used to it now with the pandemic, <laughs> but honestly, you'll do yourself a world of favor and you'll actually wait less time. Um, if you just stay exactly where you are, because as soon as you move or you try to take that open spot, even if a place opens at the bar, depending different bartenders have different systems, but I was taught like a typewriter, you kind of go down the line and you hit every seat. And then once you hit like seat 10, 12 seats down, you click reset like you would with a typewriter and then you go back through it. So anyone coming in the middle, and they're like, hey, man, I'm ready for a drink. You're like, dude, there's six other people Ahead to your you. left, <laughs> my right, that have been waiting patiently. Um, and, yeah, I think that's a big one is when people move up. There, there's so many more that I can't think of right now. But <laughs> honestly, it's just just be patient. We'll get to you. We want to get you drinks. We're, we're not trying to dog you out on person. Our job 
is to get these drinks out fast. And some nights are a little busier than than normal. Be patient. Don't be an ass. Like yeah. it's, we'll get to you. And and if you are being ignored, it's probably your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so before I jump into my my standard uh, fun questions, what are your yeah. uh, your three classically classic drinks? My classically classic. Mm, you're gonna put me on the spot. <laughs> What's funny is, is I just told you like when I drink out by myself, people are shocked. My friends aren't, but when I go out drinking, I drink a tequila neat as I'm drinking right now, reposado please, and a soda water back. It's uh, I don't really drink beer as much anymore. I just I just want a shot, and but I want to sip on it. Um, my cocktails that I like to make. Um, I would have to say one of my favorites, I used to, you know, everyone loves an old fashioned and I did too, when I first started drinking more adult cocktails, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but so from the old fashioned, I got interest in a Manhattan yes. and then from the Manhattan, I found the black Manhattan, which I'm absolutely in love with. If anyone loves old fashioned and Manhattans, treat yourself to a black Manhattan where it's two ounces of rye, and instead of the one ounce of sweet vermouth, they use Averna. You can have fun and use other Amaros, but to explain it quickly, an Amaro is an Italian bitter liqueur, but a number of them are sweet enough to take the place of the sweet vermouth, but they have like a dozen, two dozen herbs and spices in the liqueur that just add more flavor than sweet vermouth does. And there's some really nice sweet vermouth, but treat yourself to a black Manhattan if you've never had it and mind blowing. Um, they're fantastic. It's just, it's, it's more complex. It's more layered. Um, and not to over intellectualize it. It's just, it, it's more playful. It dances on the tongue and it finishes just as smooth as a Manhattan. And you're like, Ooh, I want some more. Got so it. that's a great, drink. um, another drink that I've touched on earlier, but I preach about to people is a daiquiri. Uh, one of my friends, Simone Mims, she's an amazing bartender. And she's one of those people that I'm lucky enough to call a friend and that I call upon frequently. She heads and tails better bartender than I am. And she would never, she would cringe at me saying that. Um, she's fantastic. Uh, she introduced me to snackeries, actually. Um, there's a thing called bartender's handshakes where even as an old bartender, Michael, you come to my bar and you tell me you were a bartender. You're always part of the family fraternity, sorority, whatever, this thing is worldwide. If you know the job that we're doing and you've once done it, then you know how much it sucks <laughs> and how much we love it, even though it sucks. Right. Then a bartender's handshake is, hey, from me to you, here's a free shot. So it varies from city to city, country to country, and it's not a hard, fast rule. It's not like you say, hey, I'm a bartender and you're entitled to a shot. But I think it really stemmed from the days before we ever got benefits. We didn't get medical or dental. That, that was a joke. But what we would get is a free shot from peers um, when we went to their bars. So in San Francisco, it's famous, famously for Nett and or Jameson. Um, in Chicago, I was just out there as Malort. Um, yeah, that, that's a tough one. And uh, Simone, who is from New York, she says out there, it's snackeries, and what a snack uh, what a snackery is is a snack sized daiquiri. You make a craft cocktail daiquiri, and it can be split into three very healthy or like four shots. And it's actually really nice because it's not a full 
you know, shot of alcohol that you got to take on a long night out, but it's just like a little refreshing sipper. Um, and it's done right. They're delicious. So just take its big brother, the daiquiri, but again, a craft cocktail daiquiri, um, rum, lime juice, and simple syrup. And those three things done properly make the most delicious cocktails. So if I ever am at a restaurant and I don't know what to drink and they have an extensive cocktail menu, if I ever panic but I don't want the server to walk away from the table without taking my order, my panic order is a daiquiri because I know for the most part I'll always have a refreshing drink. And it leads into a lot of different things where I can get the direction from there. But I am on team daiquiri and it looks funny because the daiquiri does come in a stemware glass. I'm sorry. I got to warn all the, all the men out there that <laughs> want a Manhattan in a rocks glass, drink it in a stem glass. Like, you know, if it, if a stem glass or a little martini coupe offends your masculinity, then it doesn't start at the glass where it goes much deeper. <laughs> like I'm six foot 245. I've got a beard tattoos out the ass. I rock around a bar with a little pretty stem glass and you know what? I have a delicious drink in my hand and um, why I always defend stemware cocktail or like uh, drinks that come in martini glasses is unlike other drinks that come on the, on the rocks, every sip will be the same. The temperature will change ever so slightly as I'm drinking it, but any drink on over ice, it will dilute over time. And I love all drinks that come in coupe glasses or martini glasses. Start to finish, that cocktail will taste exactly the same. So I think I jokingly tell people, I'm like, stop, you know, trying to do the machismo thing. And I want my Manhattan in a rocks glass over a big rock. It's, no, it's not about being a man or a woman. It's about enjoying a delicious drink. And yeah, as um, I said, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because I, one, I've never really been a big fan of beer. I've yet to find a beer that I can just kind of sit and drink. I've always liked mixed drinks, fruit drinks, and would perpetually get my balls busted because I would get a fruit fruit drink or instead of a beer or something like that. So I'm glad to hear that there's you know, somebody else out there that could adm- appreciate the glass and the drink in and of itself. Yeah, and honestly, I, I'll get into I think you asked for three. I gave you two very long ones. Honestly, I'll tell people this is I always advocate to try new and fun things is if you like a Manhattan, let's try a black Manhattan. If you like this drink, let's try like a close cousin to it. Um, you know, if you like a Gimlet, let's try a Southside. There's so many different ways you can kind of just, you can go from one comfort zone and just try something a little new and you, you just opened up a whole new world of cocktails. It's all cocktails are like based off the same 20 foundations. And right. then it's just, you add an ingredient, you subtract one. You add two ingredients, and it's a brand-new cocktail with a new name. But I always tell people, like what you like, and, and don't be apologetic for it. Um, I've made a career out of making cocktails, and I love the discovery of it, and I love to share that with people who like to explore and discover new cocktails and new flavors. Um, sometimes me making drinks for other people, what we call that dealer's choice. Dealer's choice is you, you name a spirit and some – some nice flavor adjectives and we kind of make something inspired off the description. Um, but more than that is sometimes your palate, Michael, maybe you like things a little more bitter than I do, maybe a little more herbaceous. Um, 
I'll go along, I'll go down that rabbit hole with you and I'll discover some things and some cocktails that I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. That would be a great fall cocktail. Or this would be really good if I, you know, if we ever had something like this on the menu. It, it really is a discovery. Have fun. And it's it's booze. I hate over-intellectualizing it. I like to do that myself. I don't want to bore you with it. Right. And if people don't want to do that and they don't want to play or go, all the best to you. Fine. If you want a vodka cranberry and I've suggested a cocktail that would be similar and with vodka and a little tart but have a little more layers to it. And you're like, no, I want a vodka cranberry. Awesome. Do you want to align with that? Like, I want you to feel special. Let's get back to what I was saying. It's the customer. Make them feel special. And maybe after a couple of their vodka crams, they'll trust you to make another drink. But I don't want to go to a bar to get lectured. It's like what you like. And this is coming from someone who's won cocktail competitions, judged cocktail competitions. And yet when I go out, I drink a Reposado Neat with a soda water bag. So don't let anyone tell you shit. But always be respectful when you go in there and don't follow the bartender up and down the bar, I guess. So where can people find you? Like, um, you've got a, a YouTube channel, you've got Instagram. Yeah. Like that. You've That's terrifying. <laughs> it, have you ever listened to yourself on a voice recording? Oh, you I know, when myself. you hear like voicemail of yourself, <laughs> I mean, you do a podcast, what, what am I doing? <laughs> Go and edit this and you hear your own voice. You're like, damn, do I really sound like that? Do that and then record your face. Um, that's what YouTube is. It's terrifying. And then I do my own editing and I get mad at myself. I'm like, can you just do it right? So, <laughs> to answer your question, yes, I have a YouTube. It's called the Bootsy Guide. Um, B-O-O-T-S-Y, kind of like Bootsy Collins. Uh, Bootsy Guide, G-U-I-D-E. And it was kind of my tongue-in-cheek uh, jab at a Michelin guide. Was I don't know Michelin. Well, I know they're the tire company, but I'm like, who are you? And why do you get to be the final word on restaurants? I was like, and why isn't there one for bars? And so that's what the Bootsy Guide started off as, as a, a kind of place to celebrate and educate people on booze and bars. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to go in and educate people or educate people, but go in and talk to bar owners and kind of show off and promote my favorite bars here in San Francisco. And the idea was to travel with it and film my favorite bars in Oakland. Let's go up the coast. My favorite bars in Portland and Seattle. But to show these things off, and I'm getting to that now that things are starting to reopen. But I wanted a safe place. And I realized that there's there's safety in YouTube. And I, if you ever looked at my YouTube searches, Michael, it would be embarrassing. I <laughs> asked the dumbest questions for YouTube. But I think we all do because you don't get judged right. and there's no one there trying to upsell you or anything. And so with the Bootsy Guide, I just kind of started off answering questions that I always get at the bar or people Instagram me questions. And I think you can't be the only one wondering that. So my, was it two videos ago? I did a video called What is Rum? And it's <laughs> over 35,000 views. I didn't promote it. I didn't do any ad sales or anything towards it. People just wanted to know what is rum, what are the different styles. So the Bootsy Guide, if you go there, um, any comments or questions, um, I respond to all of them because what YouTube allows me is to answer all those questions that I don't have the time or luxury to do at the bar. Right. Is I, as a bartender, I love the discovery. I want to teach you and show you off tomorrow's, you know, let's go down and teach you what chartreuse or what the fuck is for net and actually walk you through and have you sip it rather than just shoot it to the neck. Um, I love to do that. But if my bar is three deep 
the same person who loves and cares and is so passionate about liquor and this industry and treating the customers with respect when that bar is three deep and anyone asks me a question like, Oh, what's the difference between this ride and this we did? I'm like, shut up, order off the menu. <laughs> like, honestly, it's just out of necessity. It's not me trying to be rude. It's just, I don't have the time, but right. with the beauty of, of the internet and with YouTube, I can actually take those questions and formulate a thoughtful response and not be that asshole dive bar bartender who thinks you're being pretentious because you're asking about tomorrow's right and not being the opposite and being the pretentious mixologist who rolls his eyes and stuffs up his nose at you like, Oh, you've never heard about this random ingredient from South Africa grown in, in one particular region during a season that only happens every eight years. No, I don't know about <laughs> it. Shut up. Uh, but I can explain all of that. So YouTube, <laughs> follow that. I have a lot of fun with it. Um, and then Instagram is probably how people can message me the quickest. And I offer this to everyone and I stand behind it is if you have a question about liquor, say it's your dad's birthday coming up or your brother-in-law or, you know, your sister really loves mezcal and you're looking for a bottle, message me, message me, introduce yourself. Let me know where you're from. Like I can kind of get a good grasp on like where in the country, like, specific bottles that you would and would not be able to get but also tell me a budget tell me what's your budget what you're looking to spend on people as well as how much you like that person you know <laughs> or how much you're trying to impress them if it's the father-in-law like i'm gonna add 20 30 bucks to the budget um just on what i recommend but i know how again intimidating it is when you go to the store and you just have a wall of tequila in front of you and i hate when people buy liquor solely based on the price tag it, it's or you know like the label of the bottle it's just there's so many wonderful spirits out there um that often don't get recognized or touched because their label isn't as pretty they don't have as big of a marketing budget right um as others and so that's kind of what the bootsy gun has evolved into is not just oh a fun youtube but me as a person being available and accessible to answer all questions because I know how intimidating it is. And to go back to what I said earlier, it's just booze. Right. So if I can offer myself as a resource, I don't even think I tell you my Instagram name is at Bootsy Brogan. I'm obviously great at this marketing thing and self-promotion at Bootsy Brogan. That's B-O-O-T-S-Y Brogan, B-R-O-G-A-N. And, um, You'll see that, and if you add me, message me, I will add you back so it doesn't get, um, your messages don't get thrown into the spam folder. <laughs> but I, I'd love to answer any and all questions, and in good time, I will ask anybody. I respond to all of them, myself. Awesome. All right, let me uh, let me throw three quick questions. The first I'm one ready. being, would you rather the voice of your conscious be Bugs Bunny or Robert De Niro? The voice of my conscience? <laughs> oh, De Niro. I think I was joking with someone the other day that I love when it rains because I feel like my life is being directed by a Scorsese movie. <laughs> like, I could be grabbing dry cleaning, Michael, but, like, as I enter or as, as I exit the dry cleaning and, like, the rain's hitting me, dripping down from the awning, like, that shit is in slow motion. <laughs> so, like, I feel like if... I also paired that with De Niro narrating my conscience. Like I, that, I would be living the dream right there. I, I got to go with Bugs Bunny. I grew up on Bugs Bunny. It, my 
brain is in perpetual motion. So Bugs Bunny would just fit the narrative in my head. Yeah. All the best to you, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm living in this really dark mobster world. <laughs> De Niro. I'm all about Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think yours would be a lot happier than mine. Mine would be dark and introspective. But there we go. We made our choices. <laughs> um, would you rather be a high-powered attorney but only represent crime bosses and hitmen or a prosecutor who puts them away? A prosecutor and put them away. Um, I... As a kid, I always had a hypervigilance about what was fair. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, you know, have this fantasy about, you know, living the mobster life. Like, no, that should be terrifying. Always looking over your shoulder, and despite, you know, the, dis, the absolute destruction that they've done to people. Um, I would, I'm going to put a twist on that. I'd be the attorney who puts them away, but then also, like, takes out some vigilante justice on them, too. <laughs> like, cause sometimes I feel like Little being hypervigilant. What's fair? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, there's, there's some parts of the law that I feel like, you know, you would get you would get caught up on, and because these criminals aren't afraid to do anything, they get away with shit. So I think very much. Uh, is it like is that Brian Braddock? Is it? Did I get my comic <laughs> book? Did I get that right? Some comic book listeners are gonna be like, no, you got it wrong. Man. Um, I was an X. I was an X Men fan. Get off me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I would. I would have to do a little of that daredevil. Like, yeah, fight it cleanly by day, but then at night, like, not afraid to get your hands dirty. I'm. Uh, I, I think I'm in the same boat. Um, I was actually a police officer for a while, and and. Oh, were you? Yeah. Part of that was because I, I just enjoy helping people. I, I, my entire adult life has been in the service of other people in, in some capacity. Um, and I'm the same way. And and I, I can I can agree that. I think there's there's some ideas out there that are things that are laws that you're like, eh, that's not really fair. So uh, I'm, I think I'm on the, the, the same page with you there. And, and just for reference, Michael, I looked it up. It, it's Brian Braddock. Ten points for me. <laughs> yeah. I also found out, because you, you, you brought up mobsters and mafia guys, uh, there's a guy that I work with that um, he's a retired New York City cop. And they're all fake. It's all show. They're, they're, most mobsters are really just a, a big joke. Um, but to the next question. You got, well, you, you need to be the face, right? right? I was talking about having on like the service smile, like the opposite is for mobsters. Like maybe you're having a really good day. You know, maybe you just woke up and you're really feeling life. And then when you go to work, which is like your little crime syndicate, like, you can't put that face on. Right. Like, just like I can't bring my shit day to work where you're supposed to be happy and everything's supposed to be good. If you're having a wonderful day as a mobster and you're going into this dark underbelly of the city, you can't come in skipping. No, you got to put on your work face and you got to be scouting. Yeah, of course it would be a face. But like, hey, if you're going to be a professional, you got to sell it. But just be careful what industry you choose. Exactly. I, I love that I just, <laughs> I just had this whole tangent about a mobster having like this wonderful day and like everything was all rainbows and butterflies for him. But then he had to put on a service face for the mobster. That's something. Yeah. That, that's where my brain goes. Imagine De Niro narrating that. Yeah. Uh, for the last question, would you rather cross walk across a dirty parking lot or a pasture full of livestock barefoot? Oh, so both of them are barefoot. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, the parking lot, man. Um, I'm a city kid, 
I don't I don't do the woods or the wild well at all. Um, I could hear a gunshot and probably like, okay, that's about three four blocks away. Like I'm <laughs> not that like psychopath where it's like, oh, that's a 22 caliber. But I'm like I just know city noises. Yeah. I used to live on Broadway in San Francisco, and my girlfriend at the time would not stay at my apartment because it's just buses and just cars running, rolling around with like 15 and subwoofers, uh, you know, the, the crazy street noise. And she goes, how do you sleep? And I'm like, that's that's normal to me. But you take me out to the woods, and like I hear a twig snap, and in my head, Michael, it's like a chupacabra, but like the size of a Bigfoot. And I'm just yelling at everyone, like, lights out! Like, zipping up the tent, like, light the fuck out, like... And you're just asking me a question of would I want to walk through a field with livestock manure? No, because <laughs> number one, I'm never barefoot because I'm a city kid. I like I wear sneakers at the beach. I have specific beach sneakers. That's how committed I am to the sneaker game. So two, if I'm out in the woods or I'm out in a field, um, I'm probably wearing some nice sneakers. So I'm not even. I mean, there's an absolute true story. I know we're wrapping up. But I kid you not, I won a competition and Jack Daniels had flown me out to the distillery out there in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And I didn't know, but they were showing us like from from head to tail or head to toe, like how they made Jack Daniels, the woods they sourced the oak from, how they made the barrels. And that a fantastic thing, this isn't really a Jack Daniels plug, but it tells the story is that the wash um, – that they used to make the actual, the whiskey afterwards, they supply that to local farmers for like pennies on the dollar. And I mean like pennies, they calculated how much it costs for them just to hold it. Um, the, the mash. And then farmers all like come up to the Jack Daniels distillery and then they just load up these big drums to feed their cattle and livestock. And it absolutely like, you know, you talk about sustainability, like right. fascinating. Cool. I'm watching all this from a different distance, Michael. Beautiful story. You're taking, you know, your your community a step above. Well done, Jack Daniels. They're like, all right, everybody hop in the van. And they drive us out to the fields where you, we actually now get to see these drums of, of old whiskey mash being fed out to the livestock. And everyone hops out of the van. I'm wearing some brand new Jordan 12s. Might mean nothing to you, but for anyone listening who knows sneakers, these are the flu games. They're really rare. And everyone's like, hey, let's go out and, like, pet cows or something i don't know i'm a city kid and i sat in the van michael and i was on a paid trip i was being hosted i don't want to be a bad guest but i also don't want to fuck up some nice sneakers so (laughs) i'm not i can tell you it's not a hypothetical because i wouldn't be barefoot i'd be wearing some really nice sneakers and yeah i'll walk through a dirty parking lot barefoot than i would through a field with shoes on of some dirty cow manure that's a fact awesome i appreciate it man Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. You have a good night. Be well. You too. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.